The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Obviously, uh, what went on during this time, uh, this is where most of the debate focuses. Could I have your attention, please? Uh, this is where most of the debate focuses, and uh, it is important to have a, um, a clear perception of the historical data, what may or may not be deduced from it. <coughs> In order to understand that second century well, uh, we need to be aware of the fact that uh, because some of that, some of the information is ambiguous, how scholars approach the period becomes very, very significant, uh, maybe even determinative with regard to the conclusions that they draw. Uh, looking at that evidence. And that's why I want to say just a little bit about uh, some of the um, presuppositions, the assumptions, the, uh, the approaches that uh, we need to keep in mind. A uh, few words, first of all, first of all about uh, the uh, contribution of uh, B.F. Westcott, Brookfoss Westcott. Uh, remember that Westcott was one of these three uh, great scholars uh, in England, uh, Lightfoot, uh, Westcott, and Hort. Westcott himself was the son of a scientist, a botanist, and he showed aptitude in, uh, in the classics, but also in art, drawing and music. He was born in 1825, uh, died in 1901. As early as 1855, when he was only 30, he had uh, written the first uh, edition of his History of the Canon, and he did a lot of work on the history of the English Bible, on um, uh, problems of apparent contradictions in the uh, Gospels, and so on. He uh, spent a lot of time reflecting on matters of ecclesiastical import, and uh, his own research into the canon was related to his interest in the growth of the church and uh, what was happening in the early centuries of uh, Christianity. In 1890, he... Uh, was um, appointed as Bishop of Durham, which uh, was actually the position that had been held by his buddy Lightfoot. And um, he continued to uh, serve the church um, for a number of years after that. In discussing the canon, <clears throat> he is very interested about the connection between, on the one hand, the written word and on the other hand, the living body of Christ, so that the history of the canon and the growth of the church, the Catholic church, using that term in, in, in the sense of the universal church, the, the orthodox church in the first centuries, that connection was, in his way of thinking, the, the key to understanding the process. 
And that when you relate those two things, the written word and the living body of Christ, uh, that leads to a conviction of authority, of the authority of what was taking place. In addressing the, the data from the second century especially, he, he comments on the fact that you're dealing with fragment, fragmentary evidence, occasional references here and there, he recognizes perfectly well that the spirit of the age was uncritical. Uh, there was no formal research going on as such. Individuals were simply uh, making references. At times it might be careless in the way in which they uh, make reference to it. But that doesn't mean that they had a low view of the Bible, of Scripture. But the references are casual and sometimes incidental. And uh, what Westcott was very concerned about was what inferences are you going to draw from that? When you look at the material that's available to us, references by the fathers and so on, uh, these are casual references because people were not necessarily addressing the question, what is part of the Bible? It was really more like what you would find in church today you went to a number of churches and you heard sermons and you would hear references to the Bible, you see, in the sermons. Now, how much would you be able to infer about the canon of the church if all you had were these incidental comments in church, you know? I mean, you could go for several months uh, to church and hear all these sermons and you might very likely draw the, the uh, conclusion that, um, you know, the church doesn't believe that Jude is part of the canon because you probably wouldn't hear any references to Jude over a course of several months uh, and a number of other books in the Bible. And so, you see, you cannot, in some um, unreasonable fashion, start drawing... Uh, data from these casual references and, and assume that there's a one-to-one -one connection between those comments and the state of what people believed was part of the canon or part of, the, of, of authoritative scripture. Uh, as Westcott put it, something must be known of the nature and the object of the first Christian literature. You need to understand its character, you see. Of the of the possible frequency of scriptural references in such fragments of it as survive, of the circumstances and the relations of the primitive churches before, you have to do all of that, before it is fair to assign any negative value to the silence or ignorance of individual witnesses or to decide on the positive truth of the evidence which can be brought forward. And you see, Westcott was particularly uh, suited to do this kind of work. He had a, an extraordinary command of the literature, the Greek and Latin fathers. And uh, he was very careful to, to ask these questions. What can be fairly uh, concluded, you know, in, in assigning a negative or a positive value to the data that you get or that you do not get? It is not enough, he says, to have the facts before us unless we regard them from the right point of sight. You see, the, 
you have presuppositions. You, say, you, you have a particular approach to begin with, and the facts are not bare in that sense. Otherwise, if, if you don't take account of that, otherwise the prospect, however wide, must at least be confused. You're going to, to get things mixed up. Now, this leads us to the second matter of the arguments from silence. And um, again, Westcott is very, very emphatic here. He says, since the use of scripture was largely dependent on the character of the controversies, you see, depending upon what people were excited about, uh, heretical issues and so on, that really determined what portions of scripture you might use. Therefore, as a general rule, I'm quoting him here, page 11, as a general rule, quotations have a value positively, but not negatively. These quotations may show that a writing was received as authoritative, but it cannot fairly be argued from this fact alone that another which is not quoted was unknown or rejected as apocryphal. Again, the same point that I was just making about if you go to church, whether you could fairly assign a negative value to any books of the, of the Bible that are, were not quoted in church, in the sermons, or that didn't happen to be discussed in the uh, Sunday school literature for a period of time. Uh, Westcott says, in effect, this is a point where you have to be sensitive to the argument from silence, because uh, the, or, or to put it in, in the terms in which he said earlier, you have, to re you have to be aware of what is the possibility or the probability, if you will, that a, a book would be quoted in a particular circumstance. Now, in the uh, preface to the later editions of the book, he uh, responds to some critic who had uh, written a review or something anonymously and who... Um, uh, made some remarks that were obviously not uh, in line with the evidence. And uh, he says this, It is obvious that nothing can be more precarious than an argument drawn from silence unless, and this is the, the important qualifying element, unless there is, very strong, there is a very strong presumption that the witness would have mentioned the fact if he had been acquainted with it. This presumption must arise from what is known of the circumstances of the several early fathers and of the occasions on which they wrote. Sure. Um, it is obvious that nothing can be more precarious than an argument drawn from silence unless, and you see the, the unless is here very important because Westcott is not ruling out in some sort of absolute fashion, an argument from silence. But an argument from silence will be valuable here only uh, in this uh, situation. If there is a very strong presumption, if you have reason to believe, in other words, that the witness that you're examining would have mentioned the fact if he had been acquainted with it. And this presumption must arise from what is known of the circumstances of the several early fathers 
and of the occasions on which they wrote. This is on, on the page uh, Roman numeral 28. Uh, this is actually the sixth edition of, uh, of his book, which has been reprinted in, uh, recently. So page uh, Roman numeral 28 in the uh, preface, you, uh, you can look at that in more detail if you like. But uh, I hope you understand what, what we're doing here. Um, here is uh, Ignatius, let's say, and he's dealing with a particular topic. What are the books that are likely to be mentioned when you're dealing with that topic? You cannot infer, well, he mustn't have known this book or that book, or he didn't think it was authoritative because he doesn't mention it. If, if it would not have been um, appropriate, you see, for that book to have been brought into the discussion. Let me say that um, modern scholars, although they're not as careless as uh, Westcott's critic back then in the way in which this matter was handled, there is, is still today, I, I am quite persuaded of this, a, a striking lack of sensitivity for this factor. And even though modern scholars may formulate their ideas in a negative fashion, you know, they will say something like, one cannot prove that the canon is early, which on the face of it is a reasonable statement, because what they're saying is, you know, a, a number of, uh, you don't have explicit references to the canon or to some books and so on and so forth. And so that way of saying, you cannot prove historically that the canon was early, whatever. Yet, as the, pro as the discussion progresses, uh, that situation is treated as a denial of its existence. But you see, to deny that it existed is quite a different thing from to say, I cannot prove it existed at the time. And uh, we'll have to look at, at that in, in, in more detail before we're finished. I'll give you a couple of examples from Kampenhausen's uh, work. Uh, he's a you know fair, quite a fair um, quite a careful scholar in many respects, but you you see how his argument begins to shift in that direction, and assuming that um, uh, assuming certain things because uh, the evidence is not yet complete. Yeah. Why don't we wait until we actually deal with the evidence? I'm just talking about some of these presuppositions at this point. And I'm going to try to build a case and then try to put that in a, in a more general framework. The, the last thing that I wanted to talk about was the, uh, the role of heresy, which I have alluded to already. But uh, again, uh, I don't know whether this sounds paradoxical to you, but heresy has a very important function to play. Um, providentially, in the growth of the church, uh, in our sinful world, whether we like it or not, growth is impossible without hard knocks. Uh, if you uh, overprotect a child, you know you don't want the child to fall as, uh, as, as the child is trying to learn to walk. And so you're always protecting and so on, uh, may never learn to walk, whatever. And uh, as the uh, child is growing up, uh, you don't let uh, you know, the, uh, the boy or the girl make mistakes along the way. Uh, you're not necessarily helping them. 
now you see if if there are mistakes and, and people suffer from it these things are evil I'm not saying that there's anything intrinsically good about that but uh, but God uses them providentially heresy is one of these factors I think it compels the church to be self-reflecting to examine itself and, and what it believes it leads toward more conscious reflection of, uh, of its existence uh, clearer thinking clearer formulation and so on but I mean, what does that really say about the views of the church before the outbreak of the heresy? Are you going to draw the conclusion that because these things were not clearly formulated or explicitly dealt with, that therefore the church did not believe these things prior to the outbreak of the heresy? It doesn't follow at all. The fact that the first clear formulations, for instance, of the two natures of Christ uh, only appear in the fourth century, does not for a moment suggest, it ought not to suggest, that the earlier Christians didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Because you have evidence that they worshipped him, for instance. But it is also clear that their conception of, uh, of the nature of Christ, the natures of Christ, was was not always sharp and it necessitated having to confront heresies that denied this aspect or that aspect of uh, the um, of who Christ is it necessitated those kinds of uh, attacks for the church to address those things in a more explicit fashion and to formulate more clearly what it believed Similarly, the fact that the doctrine of justification by faith alone was first formulated clearly in the 16th century, does that mean that people were never saved before 1517? Of course not. Uh, similarly, the fact that in the history of the church, formulations regarding the authority of Scripture do not address the problems raised by modern critical concerns uh, hardly means that uh, they did not uh, believe in inerrancy. And, and you see, there's an argument that often is, is mentioned. Uh, people will go to uh, uh, Christian writers prior to the 17th century, let's say, and they say, you see, they're, they're not concerned over inerrancy, and so on and so forth. Well, because people were not raising the same kinds of questions that they have been in the past couple of centuries with the growth of science and, and, and those kinds of issues. <clears throat> But now, it is agreed on all sides, it is agreed on all sides, that Marcion and some of the other heresies more or less associated with uh, Marcion, it is agreed on all sides that Marcion and other heretics compelled the church in the second century to address the issue of the canon in a way the church had not done before. That is quite obvious, and, and that is not in dispute. The question, however, is this. Did the church's response to Marcion, which meant a, a, a more explicit identification of the canon and so on, did that response conflict 
with the earlier view of the church, with the, with the position that the church had held prior to the um, work of Marcion? Or was the church's response simply a conscious refinement of what Christians had uh, believed already, had already uh, uh, been committed to? That is the real question. Now, in an attempt to deal with that issue and try to answer that question, in a sense, everything that I'm going to uh, be saying uh, for the rest of this section of the lecture is really an attempt to respond to that question. Uh, was the, uh, the way in which the church responded to Marcion and others uh, by uh, more explicitly speaking about their source of authority in, in the New Testament books, was that response a new thing in the church or, uh, and, and thus possibly incompatible with what the earlier church believed, or was it simply a natural development uh, in continuity with what the church had always believed? Now, the, the, the approach I'm going to be using here depends uh, somewhat in uh, the, met the method of Theodore Tsan, whom we uh, mentioned, looked at before, which is not a, a strictly chronological method beginning with the earliest and, and moving on, but rather um, following, as Tsan would have looked at it, following an order that conforms to the process itself, that is, begin with not the very earliest period, but rather the earliest period for which the evidence is clear. The earliest period for which the evidence is clear and for which the evidence is sufficient to establish some conclusions. And that's the late second century. Or to be more precise, from about the year 170 to about the year 220. From 170 to 220. That uh, period is the earliest period for which we have sufficient and clear evidence to draw some fairly firm conclusions. And once we have done that, then we can go back to the earlier part of the century and ask, uh, what is the more likely explanation of the insufficient evidence, if you will, that we have for that earlier period. There are two um, sources that we need to look at. One is the Moratorian Canon, and the other one has to do with the apologists um, that uh, you know, we briefly commented on before. The Moratorian Canon is probably, and I'll have to explain why I, why I need to qualify it with probably, the earliest list the earliest uh, list uh, with a formal consideration of canonical books, that is, of considering, uh, dealing with the question why or, sh or why should not a work be accepted. Now, let me say briefly here, parenthetically almost, 
that this view that the Moratorian Canon is the earliest list uh, dated to perhaps um, about the uh, with this period, about the year 200, give or take 20 years. That view uh, has been contested in the past couple of decades by a number of scholars, primarily a fellow named uh, Sundberg. <coughs> In fact, uh, in fact, Sundberg has, was asked to write the uh, article for Canon in the supplementary volume to the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, which uh, was the standard for many years in you know mainline critical scholarship. Uh, was first published in the early 60s, and in uh, the mid 70s, uh, this supplementary volume came out, and uh, Sundberg was asked to uh, write the uh, article on Canon. And uh, he stated it as though it were a generally accepted fact, you see, that the Moriatorian canon really belonged to the fourth century, not to about the year 200. As a matter of fact, uh, he was very, very much in the minority about that, like a minority of one, possibly, maybe not quite that, uh, that much. But uh, it is true that in the past 10 years or so, a number of other scholars have begun to move in, uh, in his direction. Uh, to my mind, his arguments have been refuted. Uh, there's a brand new book that um, um, tries to develop his ideas further. Let me just give you a couple of details. There's a reference to uh, Hermas, the shepherd of Hermas, as having been written, quote, very recently in our time in the city of Rome while his brother Bishop Pius occupied the chair of the church in Rome. Now, the Shepherd of Hermas uh, is a mid-second century uh, work. And uh, it is difficult to explain why this document would refer to the Shepherd of Hermas in, in this uh, fashion very recently in our time in the city of Rome and so on. And that statement alongside other features uh, has convinced most scholars, in fact, this was not even uh, debated, uh, contested uh, prior to the uh, 1970s, I don't think, or 60s, that indeed the moratorium canon uh, could be dated uh, by the year 200, give or take um, 20 years. Nevertheless, um, you need to be aware of the fact that there's some debate going on about this. So uh, we, we need to uh, be uh, aware of, of the possibility that the evidence from the moratorium canon is not quite as unambiguous as we might want with regard to the date. But assuming it is early, and I think there, there's good grounds for, for still holding that, uh, you look at the contents of that document, you find that it includes the four Gospels, Acts, all of Paul, Jude, uh, the letter of John, uh, well, at least two letters of John. It's, uh, you can interpret the statement more than one way. And the book of Revelation. Probably also First Peter. I say probably also, it, it is not actually listed, but almost every scholar who looks at the document has concluded that it was really a scribal mistake that First Peter is, is not there because it just does not 
fit every other bit of evidence we have about the uh, status of First Peter in the West. Um, missing are Hebrews, Second Peter, and James. Hebrews, Second Peter, and James are missing from the list. Included in the list are uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, so-called, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, which is really an Old Testament apocryphal book, and so on. When you look at that list, what you find is that in all essentials, it is the same canon we have, but with the borders, if you will, still somewhat flexible. In other words, there's still some discussion going on about a few, a very few of the books. But perhaps more important than the list itself is the, um, are the comments and uh, the way in which uh, the, whatever church was involved in this seemed to be reflecting on these issues. The very phraseology that is used phraseology. They don't actually use the word canon, but uh, you do have statements like recognized, received, or read in the churches, read in the churches. Some of the books are clearly and explicitly rejected, like the Shepherd of Hermas. And you see, the Shepherd of Hermas is not included in the accepted list, because it is recently written. You see. It, it, it does not have that kind of apostolic authority. And the very fact that it is rejected is an indication uh, that the church was op operating with a clear notion of authority. Some things are authoritative, some things are not. There's also a, an apparent recognition of the finality of the canon. There's a rather important clause in the list and then the document that says that the number of the prophets is closed and the biblical era is ended. Um, so, you see, the church is reflecting on the fact that uh, these, the scriptures represent a, a period that has come to a close, a period of revelation, and that therefore, in, in one sense, there's this finality to the canon. Uh, it's not an explicit quote, but it's, this is the kind of phrase that the, the number of the prophets is closed and that the biblical period is ended in some sense. I believe you have this whole document uh, translated for you in, in the book by, uh, uh, you know, the Toit, uh, the introduction volume. There is concern for the unanimity of the Gospels and, and the guidance of the Spirit. And you find that the document is operating with, with certain criteria as to what makes a book authoritative. There is a, a, a concern for apostolicity. If a book is written by an apostle, you assume that it has a canonical authority. Uh, recognition, recognition of inspiration, uh, the, uh, the authority of God himself. Concern for ecumenicity. What I mean by that is that uh, there is some realization that unless a work is widely accepted by the churches, uh, then uh, that book probably does not have uh, the authority that uh, it, it may be claimed for it.
ecumenicity. The, the word is not important. The point is that the, the universal, more or less universal acceptance. But especially, there seems to be a particular uh, concern for historical authenticity. Historical authenticity. And, and here again, uh, that comment about the Shepherd of Hermas uh, should not be accepted because it was written recently. Uh, indicates that particular point of view. <coughs> so the Mortarian Canon, very important. Uh, the first formal or official document from a church in which a, uh, an explicit list is given and even reasons are given for why certain books are accepted and some are not. Yeah? The name? Uh, from, uh, uh, I think, the fellow who discovered it. Murator? That's right. Anyway, apologists, the apologists. Once again, uh, I mean, the very title that we give these, these uh, Christian fathers, apologists, ought to tell you something. They are defending the faith. They are responding to problems. They are reacting to a heresy, such as Marcion. Marcion had rejected the Old Testament and um, had um, come up with a, uh, an abbreviated canon of the New Testament, which consisted uh, only of the uh, epistles of Paul and of a version of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which was apparently edited in some respects. Then uh, there is the heresy of so-called Christian Gnosticism, uh, people like Valentinus and so on. There is the heresy of Montanus, the Montanist heresy. Which uh, claimed that there was a, a uh, whole outburst of new revelation, a new outpouring of the spirit, is something that had wide appeal uh, in the second half of the second century, uh, people who did not, did not have this new outpouring of the Spirit, and so this kind of a second blessing, were viewed as sub-Christians. And in effect, new revelations uh, were competing with the apostolic writings, and so the, the apologists, or some of them, had to address that problem. Now, I'm not going to spend the time here in class going over the actual quotes of uh, the apologists because in some of the reading you can, you can look at uh, the specific uh, passages. But we need to recognize that we have representatives from the whole period and from the whole geographical uh, manifestation of the church. In the East, you have people like Clement of Alexandria and Origen. In the West, you have people like Tertullian and Irenaeus. And when you see what they have to say about the New Testament, it is plain that the basic contours of the New Testament are not even uh, under debate. And they conform to what we find in the Moratorian Canon. In fact, um, if you go to the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, the original edition, not that supplementary volume that I was mentioning now, but in the original edition, 
The article by Cannon was written by a New Testament scholar named Beer, who uh, is certainly not an evangelical by any stretch of the imagination. And yet his description of what is going on in the second century, particularly say about the year 200, is quite revealing. He says, and this is a quotation from um, the volume, the, uh, the volume that must be the first volume, page 527. All four lines of testimony, now by four lines what he means is, there is a testimony from Rome, that's the Moratorian canon, there's Irenaeus, who uh, Beer says represents half of the Christian world. Why? Because Irenaeus ministered in Gaul, but he had come from uh, Asia Minor. And so in a sense, um, uh, he lets us know what's going on in, in a rather significant uh, spread, geographical spread. So you, I'm saying there are these four key lines of testimony. Rome, Irenaeus, Egypt, that's uh, Origen and um, uh, Clement of Alexandria, and also North Africa, that's Tertullian. Now you see, that gives you a, a, a rather um, panoramic approach to the whole of the Christian world at the time. And he says, all four lines of testimony are in remarkable accord and take it for granted that the views they express are held by the Catholic Church everywhere. Uh, the four lines of testimony are in remarkable accord and take it for granted that the views they express are held by the Catholic Church everywhere. You see, this is a historical datum that you need to be very clear about. There is consistent, wide, clear recognition of the basic uh, contents of the New Testament canon. Now, let me give you a little bit more detail about what that really means. You, you have... Uh, statements like uh, those of Irenaeus, who stresses the unity uh, and exclusive authority of, of the Gospels. You know, he talks about just as there are four corners in the world and four winds, uh, and as the church is scattered over, uh, over all the earth, it is proper to have four pillars held together by the one spirit. And whatever you think of the imagery, the point is that he is reflecting on the church's conviction that you need these four Gospels, and only these four Gospels as the basic authority. Uh, Origen has this statement, for example, the Church of God recognizes only the four Gospels. And you need to distinguish between what Origen may think as an individual, on the one hand, from what he is reporting that the Church believes. And, and that's what's of interest to us here. If you summarize all the data that you get from these fathers and, and all this uh, information, you, you have to conclude the following. There's no apparent doubt, no apparent doubt expressed anywhere about 
the four Gospels, the 13 epistles of Paul, Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John. Four Gospels, 13 epistles uh, of Paul, Acts, 1 Peter, and 1 John. There is scattered, scattered opposition to 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. Now, what I mean by scattered opposition, what, I, what I'm really getting at is that there is wide recognition even of these books. It's just that some doubts are expressed, uh, apparently, by a, by a few churches or people or whatever. In the case of Hebrews and James, in the case of Hebrews and James, we have a, an unusual situation because these two books seem to be accepted in the East, but suspected in the West. Hebrews and James were accepted in the East, but sus suspected in the West. And only Second Peter is really in a doubtful situation there. In terms of the historical data, uh, Second Peter is, is the, 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 the one big problem. Now, try to get some perspective on this. At least 20 <coughs> books, and we probably should say, should say 24 if you include uh, Second, Third John, Jude, and Revelation. But at least 20, and probably 24 books, out of 27 are accepted by the church. And so there seem to be a number of books in the fringes. Hebrews, James, and Second Peter. But also some other books. The Apocalypse of Peter. Barnabas. First and Second Clement. Shepherd of Hermas. Some of these early Christian writings, which were accepted as, as authoritative by some churches, but most did not. And, and this general picture is confirmed by some of the early versions, especially the old Syriac, especially the old Syriac and the old Latin. Now, I want you to appreciate that this situation that I have just described for you really gives the lie to Harnack's theory. Remember Harnack's theory was that it was not until Marcion came on the scene and he started talking about a canon that the church even thought of the idea of a canon. And when they decided to go in that direction, they were really, betray they were really betraying the real genius. And they chased the spirit into a book and all this. I'm suggesting to you that the picture that we get when you look at the end of the, of the second century is simply not compatible with that theory. Why? Because what you find is an attitude of basic agreement coupled with peripheral disagreement. Basic agreement coupled with peripheral disagreement. That is not what you would expect if the church first formed its canon in reaction to Marcion. You see, Harnack's theory demands I think, that the church must have a clearly, def 
clearly defined boundaries, as clearly defined a set of boundaries as Marcion had. But that's not what you find. You do not find a church imposing this black and white, absolutely you know, undisputable kind of thing. What you find instead is a, a natural, growing recognition on the part of the church as to what indeed is the, uh, the, the scriptures. Now when I say basic agreement, now I already told you, you're talking about 20 to 24 books out of 27. Uh, but if you start counting pages, do you, you realize what we're, if, if you take the, uh, I think I have the numbers from the earlier UBS edition, which has about 500 pages. Uh, if you count from Matthew to Philemon, and all of that was accepted without any debate, that's 424 pages. If you add the 7th uh, for 1st Peter, 6th for 1st John, and the 30 for Revelation, you end up with 467 pages out of 500. So when I talk about basic agreement, uh, I mean, I really mean that. Only about 7 or 8 percent, only about 7 or 8 percent of the New Testament was being debated. That is not what you would expect. You see, you would either have... Uh, really vicious disagreement with a little agreement on the one hand, or on the other hand, you have some kind of formal authoritative declaration that these and only these are accepted, as Marcion had. Marcion's canon was absolutely inviolable, if, inviolable, if you will. But uh, the church was dealing and struggling with the issue. That evidence suggests a free and spontaneous process over a period of time. A free and spontaneous process over a period of time, not some kind of coercion. Now you see, a really basic point here is that the origins of the New Testament canon uh, cannot be equated with its recognition by the church. And people really get mixed up about this. They think, they seem to um, equate the time when the church first recog clearly recognizes the canon. Oh, that's the origin of the canon. But you're getting things really mixed up here. You see, neither a quotation from a father, uh, not even some kind of conciliar decree, those kinds of things are not constitutive of the canon. They are not constitutive of the canon. They are simply a recognition of what already was there. So you see, I think uh, Tsan was right when he argued that uh, from the end of the apostolic age, the church already had its canon and had at least some um, awareness of the very concept of canon. The heresies compelled the church to be more explicit and to develop a more clearly defined understanding. And so you see, Marcion did not create the canon. All he did was to accelerate 
its recognition. As uh, Dr. Gaffin used to put it, well, I guess he still does. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had him for, for this stuff uh, 30 years ago, but heresy is catalytic rather than constitutive in its effect. Heresy is catalytic rather than constitutive in its effect. And uh, you see, again, if you read uh, Kampenhausen carefully, <coughs> you notice that even though he, um, he qualifies Harnack's ideas somewhat, he, uh, he's still not very clear on, on this issue that I'm, I'm dealing with right now. On page 163, he says, Marcion, quote, remains the creator in conception, at any rate, of the Christian Holy Scripture. At least in conception, Marcion, in Kampahausen's view, Marcion remains the creator of a Christian Holy Scripture. And so, at least on that point, Kampenhausen is quite agreed with Harnack, but uh, I, I don't think that really fits the evidence. Uh, subsequently, on page 209, especially, page 209, uh, Kampenhausen basically credits Irenaeus almost single-handedly with the orthodox New Testament canon. So Marcion comes up with canon, he creates the idea, and then Irenaeus, almost single-handedly, he tells you what is the orthodox canon in, uh, in distinction from Marcion's. Uh, I, I really don't think that, that uh, gives you a, an accurate picture of what's going on. Now, um, let me just get started a little bit on the early second century. And uh, all I'm going to do is to give you a summary of the evidence because we're running late and besides I... I really never get to deal with problem texts uh, in this course. I always run out of time, so and it's not essential for, for the main points. But um, you see, how, how you proceed now to evaluate the evidence prior to the year 170 depends very, very largely on what you expect to get. If you assume, maybe unconsciously, that lack of formal statements, that lack counts as lack of evidence, then you certainly will come to a negative judgment. If with Zahn or even Westcott, uh, we give due weight to the earliest clear testimony, and you ask whether these prior statements are in accordance with the later ones, See, that's a quite a different way of, of approaching the material. Then your conclusions will be very positive. So that the problem here becomes one of uh, what's the burden of proof, you see. Well, we'll come back to this on Monday and uh, try to uh, deal with it in more detail.